Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Clinical Updates and Strategies for the Long-Term Management of Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. The topic of this podcast is educating your patients' approaches to shared decision-making. This is podcast six of our series. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and Bristol-Myers Squibb Company as provided by Academic CME. My name is Dr. Fred Loveland. I'm the Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my colleague, June Halper, Nurse Practitioner and Chief Executive Officer of the Consortium of MS Centers, the IOMSN, and other related organizations who's coming to us from Hackensack, New Jersey. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, June. Just to remind folks, today's topic is educating your patients' approaches to shared decision-making. So June, nice to speak with you. Nice to speak to you also. And so I'm happy to have you on this podcast because of your expertise and and long interest in in dealing with, with patients and how all practitioners who look after patients with MS can work together. So let's start with the idea of shared decision-making and tell us what that actually means. Well, shared decision-making is a fairly new concept actually. um, And I think a lot of it came from when we started seeing challenges with complex medications in MS. Because as you know, at the beginning, there weren't a lot of decisions to be made. When you and I first met, MS was a disease of uh, diagnose and adios. And then once uh, the injectables and then followed by the infusables and orals came along, patients were asked to participate in agreeing to take on the responsibility of the medication. You know, self-injection or showing up for infusions or remembering to take your pills is a real surprise responsibility, especially for those people who were told it's MS and there's not much you can do with it. And suddenly you ask them, particularly you yourself, as a neurologist say, hey, I want you to start taking this medication. And the patient says, why? I thought MS was just the kind of disease that's going to get worse. So I think knowing you, Dr. Loveland, I know you probably sat down with your patients and explained to them uh, the options as they started to evolve and asked them to participate in taking on the responsibility. So you know, it's not like when you have uh, more uh, um, severe diseases where you just go for infusions because you have to, it's life or death. In MS, it's life or life. And so I think the shared decision-making model evolved when we all realized that patients had to agree and they had to concur with your decision and understand why they were taking on the responsibility. So it either means sitting down with the patient, you as a physician or the nurses or mental health specialist to educate and explain to patients why now suddenly MS had a lot of promise, but a lot of work. 
And uh, I, I think it was a big surprise, but a wonderful surprise that we started to deal with over the past um, three decades and um, an exciting one at that. Right. So, so we've long been pushing the idea this is a very complex disease that requires comprehensive care um, for many different types of providers. But the idea of bringing the patient in, it, it, in one way, it seems intuitive, but the other, it's, it's, it's not been that easy to justify. And we've seen people, you and I and our colleagues, who say, well, they've come for another opinion, say, well, the doctor said, this is the drug I want you to take and no discussion, um, that kind of sets our teeth to chatter to, to try and bring them into the conversation. But the other side of the conversation is sometimes we'll get a patient coming in and say, well, I don't want to decide this. I'm coming to you, the expert, uh, for you to tell me what I want to take. Well, then the adherence rate goes down. You know, then uh, I think that we make that mistake by saying, um, let the clinician, the prescriber make the decision and the patient goes home and starts scratching his head or the process becomes too complex, showing up for an infusion or self-injecting and doing site rotation, or if you're on an oral, going for blood work. So I think unless you engage the patient in that decision and they buy into it, you're gonna find your adherence rate goes down. And there've been a number of studies that I've seen over the past 20 years where that's proven to be true. Now it's different than with diabetes. You know, using the example of diabetes, whether they're on an oral or injectable, they can measure their blood sugar. Now, particularly with all the auto stuff that they can do. With MS, there's no way of monitoring if the drug is doing the right thing. So you have to rely on the clinician who prescribed it, but also the belief and I think uh, we knew a woman named Linda Morganti who used to work at your center. The patient has to really believe and have hope in it. And sharing that decision really gives them a buy-in. You know, this is, um, MS is a very different disease, as we know. And it's invisible and not very measurable unless you want to do an MRI every month. And I guess we're not going to do that. So um, I think belief and hope really play a very strong role in that shared decision-making process. And if you as a clinician, and I know that's how you do it, and I know that's how we did it at our center, you want the patient to believe in it. And so shared decision-making, I buy into it, means I have an investment in it, so I'm gonna do it. And um, I think that that's, that's why this model has become so successful, I think, over the past 10, 15 years. So you raise a really good point in, in that analogy to other illnesses, because if we do exactly what we hope to do, the patient doesn't feel anything. That's right. right. At the end of a year, they're no different than they were the year prior. And, and so that's something that sort of has to be transmitted to them and understood. And that's where the, the belief comes in and the, and the expectation. Absolutely. That's a big problem with MS. It's a good problem, but it's a big problem is the patient will come and say, Dr. Loveland, I don't feel any better. And you explain to them, I never said that this drug is going to relieve your symptoms. Let's talk about your symptom, like your bladder or your bowel, or you have spasticity. Let's talk about that. But the drug you're taking to, un to treat the underlying disease process is not going to be that visible to you. So let's get those symptoms managed. And I think that's where the work comes in. And that's a lot of work for us. And, um, and that's a lot of explanation. You know, it's not, 
uh, fortunately, our, our, uh, the condition we deal with is not live or die. So if an oncologist says to a patient, you must take chemotherapy because I want you to live, there's results. With MS, it could be a steady state for many years and the patient still says, I don't feel any better. Right, so you bring up an important dichotomization in, in, in part of comprehensive care. The one that we spend more time educating on, rightly or wrongly, is disease-modifying therapies. But the second limb of what we do is the symptom management. Uh, as my colleague, uh, Stephen Krieger, likes to say, there's always something you can do for a patient with MS, no matter where they are in the spectrum. But it's a very different approach for what we're doing with disease-modifying therapy. There, at the present time, at least, we're hoping to hold the disease in check. Right, exactly. Just, just as importantly, and, and we really actually count on our, our nurse practitioners and nurses for this very common, is the symptom management. Right, right. And then rehab, you know, I mean, that's why you're lucky and I was lucky to have a comprehensive care center behind you, or to have colleagues, you know, that back you up. But, you know, mental health issues, if a person's depressed, we know they're not going to feel better. In fact, they'll probably feel worse. And so their disease-modifying therapy is doing a good job, but they're still having problems coping with the disease itself. Or, as I mentioned, bowel or bladder, pain, spasticity. And we know that uh, when you start doing something to manage those symptoms, patients do start feeling better. And they do, again, take control of their disease by doing something about it. But it's hard work. It's hard work for all of us. So... so we have a bit about the benefits. So, so how does a skilled clinician gauge the patient's interest in how much they want to know? That's, that's a very important question because uh, I, did, I do an experiment when I do patient programs. I'll go into a room and I'll find out if, where they are in the disease. If they're newly diagnosed, I'll start out by saying, I want you to close your eyes and I want to say the words multiple sclerosis and tell me what's the first thing that comes to your mind. And 99.9% .9 of the time is wheelchair. People still envision MS as an unrelenting downhill slide to a, a disability, mainly with walking. I think cognition and other symptoms or worsening conditions in MS are not quite as obvious. But still today, when we have all the promise of disease-modifying therapy, so I think we have to tailor our education to the expectation of what the patient, so the first thing you need to do with that group is to try to talk about the promise and hope of MS, how much we know about it, and the wide array of medications that we have today would have been different 30 years ago. You know, 30 years ago, we talked a lot about symptomatic management and, and psychosocial stuff. Today, we are able to say, we have medicines that are going to help you stop getting worse, well, try to hold the disease in its tracks. No guarantee of a cure. Then, of course, if you're dealing with a group of more advanced disabled people, you've got to tailor your education um, to a little different level. Or if you've had somebody who comes to your office with more established disease who's failed three or four different medications and is still seeking help, your education's got to be tailored a lot to that particular person. So again, MS is hard work. And the tools we need, though, are the tools from groups like the National MS Society, MSAA, certainly the Consortium of MS Centers or IOMSN, 
or in many cases, MS centers have their own materials. I know Steve Krieger at US Center has created a lot of uh, information for patients and families. So you are very lucky. Um, the ones I worry about are the patients in the more rural areas where an isolated practitioner is trying to educate patients. So that patient may go out on the internet and learn very inaccurate information. And so those are the people that I'm a little concerned about. But we in the Northeast are very fortunate. We, we have a lot of tools, a lot of information. So what does that practitioner out in rural areas have? How does he get education material? Probably online, but then again, I've met a number of them, and particularly I've met a few nurse practitioners that practice in the middle. One of them was in Center State, Iowa, and uh, that's tough. It's tough. You, you got to spend a lot of time on the internet finding the right program. So this type of program is going to be extremely helpful. This should be advertised to people in the rural areas to try to help them uh, uh, reach out and I'm sure that this program is going to have a lot of, of information. This is the kind of program they definitely need. You know, whereas there's a number of programs out there that are somewhat hopeful, maybe may too hopeful and a little misleading. So um, the internet can be a great blessing, but can also be a little bit of a curse. And you just have to spend a lot of time, which is at a premium today, because a lot of people are, are being treated on the internet. <laughs> and, and I'm sure the last thing the practitioner wants to do at eight o'clock at night is start seeking a good education for their patients and families. Right, and patients too. You know, we have a, a group of patients that's pretty much well-educated, interested in the disease. What are the best tools for them to, to self-educate? It's hard to say, you know, again, I haven't explored the internet in the past few days, a <laughs> few weeks actually, but I know the IOMSN has a lot of very, very good information for patients and families on things like symptomatic management, on uh, CIS, which is clinically isolated syndrome, on managing symptoms. But I also know organizations like the National MS Society or the MSAA uh, have a lot of good, good tools. Um, you know, it's, and it also, the one thing that we, we haven't talked about is there are a lot of racial disparities. We know people of color get MS. We never talked about it as much as recently. People of Latino background, people of a lot of ethnocultural backgrounds, and they may get MS differently, and they may have different views of health and wellness. And some people still have that view, I am not going to be involved in shared decision making. I want my doctor to tell me what to do. So those people may not have the kind of tools that we provide with for the Caucasian or the middle American population. And I think there are still some disparities out there and uh, it might take us a year or two to figure out where they are, but one of these days we should start looking at that. Okay, so how about dealing with intermediaries, insurance companies, pharmacy benefit providers, Oh, you have two hours. <laughs> um, well, the, the well the the insurance companies and of course the the um, benefits managers for the pharmaceutical or specialty pharmacies, they impose certain rules and regulations. You know, remember we have fifty states, as you know, and some territories, and each one each state has a different mandate. Each each insurance company has a different plan and a different each different state and each. Um, 
organization makes different plans with that same carrier. So it's a morass of confusion. And I think the clinician, the nurse practitioner, the PA, the medical assistant, medical secretary, I don't know how they survive. I remember when I ran an MS center, the, the time that we spent writing letters of medical necessity, describing the individual patient condition, um, really took away from patient time. It took away a lot of, of energy and a lot of time we could have spent on the shared decision-making and conversations. I, I once figured that 44%, and that was a month many years ago, 44% of my nurse's time, my nurse colleague's time, was spent on prior authorizations, reauthorizations, and explaining why we couldn't do a step edit on a medicine because they wanted the patient to fail one or two inexpensive medications before they started on a stronger one. It's a challenge. I, I think, I think they, they still have that, close your eyes and picture MS and it's the wheelchair. I think most carriers still feel that MS is a downhill slide to disability. And that's probably our fault, but what are we gonna do? We're only a limited among, uh, um, number of professionals. And um, we, we don't have a banner carrier. We don't have one person that's out there speaking up for the disease. We have a lot of people and a lot of different voices. And um, maybe we should have developed that one voice many years ago. Remember Leib Scheinberg? He might have been that one voice. <laughs> he yeah. was a comprehensive care champion. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a difficult issue. As you mentioned, it takes up a lot of time. Uh, I have to tell you, I've tried educating those particular groups. But in the end, no matter how well-intentioned they are, the accountants rule out and the cost uh, uh, comes to the forefront. Um, but the other aspect that I want to get to is, is it impedes your relationship with the patient because it puts the clinician in the middle of the patient saying, well, my insurance company turned down that thing. What's going on here? You know, why don't they like the drug you chose? Right. Um, and that impedes the actually education process, I think. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, I think that it does because the patient says to themselves, if this was a good clinician and he wants me to take X medicine, why don't I just get the medicine? They don't understand the, the mechanism, the ramifications of getting somebody authorized on a pretty expensive drug or a pretty effective drug. And um, you know, in the hours of unreimbursable time spent getting this drug to the patient, it's, the layers are amazing. And unless you're there, or unless the patient, him or herself, is a professional, they'll never understand that. But we still have to do it, I guess, and it's, uh, I wish there was a way of doing it to not take that kind of time away from the clinical care we'd like to give to the patient. Yeah, and increase the cost. You know, right. the decrease and the other thing is that's why quality. Yeah, well, that's why centers have sprung up. I think that's why I know even in our area where we have a lot of MS centers here in New Jersey and New York, there are many private docs that have a stable person with MS. They'll keep them in practice. But if the patient's condition becomes much more complex and time consuming, they're referred to MS centers because the centers do offer that team approach, the number of people that can help with this layered approach of getting medicines and getting rehab and getting mental health. So that's, that's, that's why I think that's why centers sprung up at the beginning and probably are growing because we see them grow every day. 
Well, the care has become more complicated, you know, yep. over Absolutely. 20 agents and some of them were extremely complicated to use. Right. And then that adds to the educational need of what we need to uh, tell individuals in terms of the potential side effects, the safety, the monitoring that has to be done. These are all educational issues. Right. Uh, how about activism and, and working with legislatures? Well, I think we leave that to the MS Coalition and the National MS Society. We've done a lot of activism in our organization, the two organizations, mainly letter writing or, or phone campaign. But um, I know the National MS Society has a woman in Washington, and we formed the MS Coalition a number of years ago, and we've been involved in advocacy. Of course, this year with COVID, everything is sort of on hold. You know, I think the most important thing we need to advocate for is a vaccine and to get us all out of the house and back to work. Because, you know, telehealth has become the model this year. And um, I don't think any centers are making any money. I think all of us were watching a lot of operating losses. So I think advocacy at this point has taken the back seat. The biggest issue, again, is the COVID and getting people um, access eventually to a, a vaccine that's going to be less you know, life, less life-threatening, you know, and uh, I, our world is definitely different than it was a year ago. So let's explore that a little bit. Aaron Miller did an earlier podcast talking about uh, COVID-19 and, and its impact from very much from the medical point of view. But you touched upon it, but talk a little bit, uh, you know, tell us a little bit what you think about the effect is and the effectiveness of, for example, telehealth in patients uh, with MS, both the benefits and, and, and the detractions? Well, I think what's happening, and I think that's what's going it, it may be a challenge. Patients are enjoying it, actually. I've heard it from a lot of people with MS that they feel they're getting excellent care. They, have, they make an appointment and the appointment's on time. And the, uh, the only thing, of course, they don't get neuro exams. A number of people are starting to utilize all kinds of electronic devices, such as WeFit, many self-monitoring things on their iPhone or Android and reporting to their clinician about maybe their 25-foot timed walk, their symptoms. Certainly, you can do a rudimentary uh, finger-to-nose finger exam. You can't do an eye exam for sure, and you certainly can't examine strength. But I think telehealth is probably um, going to be a big challenge once the uh, COVID uh, is under control, these slide pretty soon. But a lot of people may continue to enjoy it and may even ask for it. And I, I'll be honest with you, certainly in rural areas, this has probably become a real blessing to those people having to drive 50 or 100 miles. And I think that uh, uh, the system of healthcare may change across the board. Um, I think from what I'm hearing from a number of centers, is that um, the only patients they're starting to bring in are those that are not doing well and those who are newly diagnosed or developing symptoms um, or have gone to the ER and had a positive MRI and a need to be seen. So um, I think our healthcare system is definitely going to change. I think this has made a permanent impact, although let's see a year from now um, whether I'm right or not. But patient education um, via telehealth is no big deal at this point. Shared decision-making could be done over the phone or like we're doing right now with explanations and referral to a good website for further information. So uh, I don't know. I, I, it, it's exciting and, and possibly a little bit scary. 
So I found it to be very good telehealth for my patients who come from a long distance um, and, and need the kind of monitoring of putting eyes on the patient rather than hands on the patient. Right. And getting questions answered and, and getting back to legislative action, you know, that's going to require some changes too. Right now we're working under emergency declarations so we can work across state lines and provide right. telehealth. Uh, but I know various organizations are, are lobbying to get the telehealth rules become more permanent so that you can cross state lines and such and, and have your license in one state accepted in another for doing that sort of activity. Some states already have that in place, uh, like yeah. Florida, um, uh, but it would be use, useful for others. Um, but then the other thing that you brought up was, was that the COVID itself adds another layer of complexity to the patient education experience. Absolutely. Well, what I'm finding, we have a registry, the CMSC and the IOM and uh, IOMSN and the MS Society, but to, and the MS Society of Canada put together a, a registry right at the outset called COVI-MS, C-O-V-I-MS, and we're monitoring. Of course, it's way too early to make any kind of inference from the numbers of people affected, but just preliminarily, and we have a few abstracts, you know, that we're going to be at, at, uh, presenting at national meetings, but uh, it doesn't seem like uh, MS was affected any more um, severely than at the average population. What I'm finding is patients with MS, because, quote unquote, they were high risk, you know, really protected themselves, took care of themselves, stayed home a lot. Particularly, we in the Northeast got hit very badly, as you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. New York City got hit just as badly as, as New Jersey. And I think that one of the things that we learned was to listen, <laughs> listen and monitor and, and behave ourselves. So, um, and of course, the, the heroes coming in and helping us were just absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, let's, let's hope that. Um, you know, watching uh, online information, educating ourselves about uh, current information is probably going to be as important in a year from now or two years from now as it was during the past several months. Yeah, good points. So, so as we finish up, just, just for our listeners, uh, um, tell them a little bit more about the Consortium of Mass Centers, you know, its, its role and its goals. Well, it was started in the mid 80s when we really didn't have a heck of a lot to, you know, to do for patients except symptomatic management. But there was a strong belief in a number of um, neurologists in Canada and the US that comprehensive care was most important for a disease like MS since MS just didn't affect the brain and spinal cord, but the whole body. And that a, a, a array of team approaches with rehab and mental health were vital for successful management. So the consortium was founded with that philosophy of the team approach, patient involvement, patient-centered care, humanistic care, and um, the CMSC's philosophy has continued in that way. You become, you've been a member right from the beginning, but the team approach sort of um, doesn't water down, but it lightens the load of a single practitioner. So in your case, in my case, when we had a center, it's a neurologist, the nurse, the mental health professional, the rehab specialist, and of course the patient. The patient is centered in this whole model. So your shared decision-making discussion today was a, a, in the making a long time ago when the consortium was founded in 1986. And our philosophy does continue today 
where the patient is involved on every level. Of course, the one major wonderful addition or two major wonderful additions, number one are the disease modifying therapies. And then number two is the internet. I think the internet has made us extremely nimble, extremely informative and extremely able to do education of our patients, families and ourselves. The, the communication and collaboration, just like our discussion today, couldn't have been done 40 years ago. And today we able to help each other and work with each other and, and learn from each other. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, June Halper, for sharing your wisdom and your long experience in, in treating and dealing with patients uh, with multiple sclerosis. And I thank all our listeners for joining this uh, podcast. Today it was Educating Your Patients, Approaches to Shared Decision-Making. Uh, and to remind you that this activity was supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and Bristol-Myers Squibb and was provided uh, with CME from Academic CME Organization. So June, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.